0: everything's everything's heightened you know and that can mean you know extreme happiness and and often you know the opposite and you you sort of go through that together because you've you're working together because you're shepherding someone through a, a publishing process they can be surprised at various different points and things can almost surprise the agent sort of in, in terms of what people's reaction to, you know, say if it's editorial feedback. So it, it, if you have a sense of wanting to, to to, sort of explain and reassure, what I do think happens within a publication process is that you're going to have touch points. Consequently, there's going to be some vulnerability and you just need to be able to work work through those. The pleasure of being a literary agent is that vicarious enjoyment of seeing someone's career blossom.
1: That was Charlie, my literary agent, and this is Are You Ready? with Joanne Molinaro. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Are You Ready? with Joanne Molinaro. How many of you have watched the movie Jerry Maguire? So I'm sure you can remember that scene at the very end where Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character gets all choked up. Well, actually, we have some very good news for you. This has just been handed to me, a memo. It's signed. It's a contract. Guaranteed. Arizona Cardinals, four years, $11.2 million. You're going to get to play in Arizona where it all started, finish up your career in Arizona. What do you think of that?
0: (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> wow! I love everybody. Oh, I love my wife. Wow, Marcy. Okay, we're almost out of time. Now yeah. now. Wait, 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 wait! I'm forgetting somebody. Jerry Maguire, my agent. You are my ambassador, Quan Man.
1: I've always wondered whether those kinds of relationships with agents were real or simply the stuff of Hollywood fluff, but I never in a million years imagined that I'd one day get a chance to find out firsthand by working with my own, Jerry Maguire. Charlie is the Brit that made all my dreams come true. He not only agreed to represent me when I was a full-time lawyer with a very small food blog, He encouraged me to write what I wanted to write, whatever shape that took. He helped me put together a book proposal, which led him to negotiating a five-figure book deal that, at the time, had me picking my jaw off the ground. But that's not where this story ends, of course. A couple years ago, when I started getting bombarded with requests for speaking engagements, I turned to Charlie. He put me in touch with the head of an old school speakers agency to help navigate a budding career as a keynote speaker, now a very significant part of my income. He also helped me find a team that would help me manage my social media accounts, all of which exploded, it seemed, overnight. But my own ambassador of Quan moment? Well, it came in 2021. My first cookbook had just been published, and it did a lot better than anyone, myself included, imagined it would back when I was pitching an entire cookbook containing plant-based Korean food. I was also determined to leave behind a full-time career in law, and I knew that doing so rested heavily on whether I could negotiate a second book deal that would serve as the launchpad for my creative career. In other words, the number attached to that book deal had to make sense a number that not only provided me with some measure of financial confidence, but that also reflected my value as an author. Charlie and I had multiple conversations, not really about a number, so to speak, but about the dream overall. I was basically tasking Charlie to go out there and make my dreams come true again. In late 2021, while I sat cross-legged on the bed in my hotel room in New York City and Charlie sat primly at his desk in London, both our eyes filled with tears as he broke the news. The offer from my publisher, the one that had faith in me when I was a virtual nobody, continued to have enough faith in me to put together a two-book deal that would secure me for years to come. So, without further ado... I'd like to introduce you to Charlie, my agent, my ambassador of Kwan. Hello, Charlie.
0: Hello, Joanne. How are you? I'm Very, very well indeed. Are you excited
1: for this podcast?
0: Super, super excited.
1: I'm so excited for people to hear your story and your accent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited for people to hear your accent too. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> so maybe just tell the Are You Ready community who you are, and what you do.
0: Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm a literary agent from the UK. Even better, I'm lucky enough to be your literary agent, Joanne. So a literary agent is a sort of matchmaker between authors and publishers. So our job is to find you the best possible partner as an author into that, into that publishing community. And it takes you to a lot of great, interesting places with amazing people. So I feel very lucky to be doing it
1: amazing places with interesting people. How did you decide to go into publishing and in particular to become a lit agent?
0: It's a very good question. I don't know when here you sort of start doing interning or sort of work experience in the UK, it's sort of, sort of 17, 16, 17. You start doing sort of a few different types of jobs with different professions. I tried my hand out at law for about a week. Not, <laughs> sure, not sure I was particularly... Survived
1: one week. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> and was very impressed and did some stints with sort of music industry stuff. And then I had this amazing sort of few weeks interning at a place which was in Soho. And it was sort of the archetypal sort of the literary agents literary agency vibe that you would could have you'd imagine if you were sort of dreaming up the the, the sort of scenarios so sort of creaking floorboards you know back streets in a sort of historical area big sort of georgian townhouse and uh, the people who ran the agency were just really amazing with the with the young people coming in so the first day i was taken off to the faber and Faber summer party, which was like one of the big sort of occasions of the year. But usually an intern wouldn't be taken there. And one of their clients at the agency, which was called Conval Walsh, had just won the Booker Prize someone wow. called D- dbc pierre <laughs> i don't know whether you remember the book vernon godlittle but his that dbc was short for dirty but clean and he was like a sort of pu- he was like a sort of punk new literary star he had sort of a, a crazy backstory and he just won the biggest prize and everyone was coming up to him saying oh we've we've got to speak his real name is peter so we've got to speak to you And so you'd have julian barnes and Ishiguru sort of coming up and he just turned to me the intern he's like I can't deal with this anymore. Let's just go, let's go around the back and have a drink. And so I was like, is this what, is this what this (laughs) profession is like? I'd literally been like labeling records for the last like two weeks. And I was like, this, this seems pretty, this seems pretty interesting. I can, I can deal with this. Yeah.
1: Did you like books?
0: Loved books. Yeah. So I did a, I did an English lit degree. You did, you major in English as well. Yes. Yes. So, That was always, I just sort of assumed that was the art form. That was always the highest art form for me. So any sense of being able to get into it seemed like a you know, potential joy. And uh, I was just lucky enough to get that experience. And I don't think a lot of people know what literary agents particularly do. It's a fairly kind of unknown unknown profession. So uh, learning that and then sort of unlearning, I guess, what you learn as a, as an English grad was quite interesting. And then you're suddenly thrown into the world of commercial, commercial publishing, mm. which is quite different.
1: So you interned when you were in high school or when you were at university?
0: A mix of both, actually. Yeah. So when I was at university, I used to come there and then do everything for them. So I'd even paint the office. Oh. I, just to, <laughs> I just wanted to get some money and survive <laughs> on, the, on the periods where I was back. But they were amazing with that. And, uh, and then the moment that there was a kind of opportunity, they'd, be, they'd have their ear to the ground, probably because they wanted to get me out of the office, to be mm. honest. Mm. And, uh, and then that let, led to a first job with a master's degree in East Asian studies in between. Oh, wow. Yeah, Yeah, I got a minor
1: in East Asian studies in college. This
0: is is getting a bit odd. (laughs)
1: No wonder we're (laughs) connected. So I wanted to actually go back to what you described as, you know, when you walked into the office, the creaking floorboards and sort of that Soho vibe, which is a very artistic vibe, and how you said a lot of people don't really know what lit agents do. I had no idea what lit agents do. It's pretty much informed completely by Bridget Jones (laughs) and one random Korean drama that I watched, which were a bunch of lit agents. (laughs) It's probably very different. Maybe if you could describe for us, like what, what does a lit agent do in granularity? I mean, I know, like you said, it's about connecting authors to the right partner in publishing, but maybe on a day-to-day basis, Mm. what does that look like?
0: Yeah, it's a good question, actually, because, each day is relatively unpredictable but there are kind of uh, there is the bread and butter of daily daily sort of literary agent life so you've got you've got authors that are under contract that you've sold to a sold to a publisher and you can either be negotiating that contract with another publisher or you can be talking with the author about the cover design of a book or you can be at the marketing and publicity campaign stage so all books are in their different sort of life cycle if you happen to have sort of two hours clear in the morning, which actually never happens, you read. So you tend to sort of read outside of those hours. So one of the great things is like working on a proposal to send to a publisher. And that's when an agent, I guess, can do a bit more of the sort of editorial side, which is kind of the more creative aspect of it. So you could be doing all of those different things in a day, which is kind of what makes it kind of fun. Mm. Or there could be a huge argument going on between publisher and an author and an agent and you're, you're, you know, you're solving a problem. So
1: sort of acting as a mediator yeah yeah there's so many questions that I have but I wanted to go back to kind of you as a high school student going into college and it sounds like you were a pretty voracious reader would you say that's right
0: I loved reading yeah that's you know the opportunity to do that around I only had six hours taught at university so you essentially just ended up doing as much reading around that as possible. Was. What
1: kind of books did you enjoy? Like, what were your top five favorite books, if you can rattle them off before oh. you became a lit agent? Oh, uh,
0: before becoming a lit agent. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a really good question. It's difficult, yeah, because I've, I've reread a lot of books, so they sort of changed in my mind to me. But at the time, I think I was big into... I used to read quite a lot of Ballard, J.G. Ballard, partly oddly because he lived where my grandparents lived, oh. in, in Shepperton, mm-hmm. and he also... He was quite influential on Martin Amos and Will Self, whose novels I went on to read. But, yeah, he, he wrote Empire of the Sun, which was made into that oh, big, wow. big movie. And a lot of his kind of fiction was about sort of... Sp- animalistic desires that come in uh, as a result of the, the the sort of dislocation of war like lord of the Flags. so yeah really 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 fun really fun <laughs> yeah, stuff a little macabre um, a little yeah yeah
1: <laughs> for a high school student yeah
0: yeah exactly because you, you're sort of you're trying to find almost a voice outside of the curriculum because you're you're going to be studying Wuthering Heights mm. you're going to be studying, but then you know we were quite lucky once we got sort of 1718 you're studying like Michael and Darcher and people like that, The English Patient. Ah. So, you know, it was a good, good all-round, quite mixed. So you could go down that sort of path and then read those authors. So it was a nice, nice mix.
1: Several years ago, I met a man who claimed he'd written a novel over a period of several weeks on a legal pad. Intrigued, I asked him what sort of books he liked to read. His answer surprised me. Oh, I hate reading. We became friends, and he let me read some of his novel to put it politely, <laughs> it became readily apparent that he didn't read. Some of my favorite writers like Min Jin Lee, author of the best-selling novel Pachinko, have openly discussed the critical role that reading has had in an author's career. Knowing Charlie was such an avid reader, I was curious to see whether he'd ever considered becoming an author himself. I've always found that voracious readers make the best writers. I think Minjin is a great example of that. She talks about that in the foreword of her book, Free Food for Millionaires, that she became a student of writing as soon as she started reading the great books. It wasn't when she you know, went into her writer's workshop and studied the traditional curriculum. There was this extracurricular curriculum if you will of just authors yeah. that she'd read had you ever aspired to be a writer yourself given how much you loved literature
0: actually funny enough no i think i realized quite quickly that i could edit and edit quite well and that that was such a distinct skill it all it made me do actually was respect people who could write more and more authors that read voraciously definitely turn out to be the, Some best, of the best writers, writers yeah uh, and it's and it's absolutely true but Another, Actually, another example of a historical novelist that kind of did that, read absolutely everything, including historical documents. So again, kind of historical fiction overlap was Hilary Mantel. And then she recreated the life of Thomas Cromwell in her Mm -hmm. fiction to the point where historians would quote Parts oh no. of those novels, thinking that they were the like real
1: citable documents. Citable
0: documents. <laughs> that definitely happened with the Place of Greater Safety, which is the French Revolution one. But she would also then leave it for six months and then say, "I need my imagination to take this over." So, and, 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 you know, examples like that just make you more respectful of just the whole enterprise.
1: The craftsmanship. When did you realize that you were such a skilled editor? I mean, it's one of those things where I certainly didn't have a lot of opportunities to edit, uh, you know, growing up. It wasn't probably until I started writing creatively that editing Mm. became a big thing.
0: Funnily enough, I think it was because I, I wanted a quick way through. I remember I remember working in pairs at school and someone would actually figure out the science problem or the maths problem. But I would write it up in flowery language. Oh. Um, so I would just sort of spruce it up. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of become a bit of a genesis story for then just enjoying that aspect of it. It's it, yeah, it's 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 the joy of language, I think. But the actual creative, the, the original creation part, you're only ever you, you, you want to be a vehicle for that. You want to help people to find it.
1: Mm. Did you ever think of veering away from the sort of, you know, directly commercial aspect of publishing, which I do view lit agents to be sort of more embroiled in that than, say, being an editor at a publishing house or even just being a freelance editor, if you enjoyed that aspect of it so much?
0: That's a good question. I, I kind of I love the breadth of what you do as an agent. So you're sort of you're kind of out there a bit a bit more. You get that freedom of working on all different aspects. So you miss out on the that edit that sort of really forensic editorial but i i you know i haven't done that to that to that extent where you know you're really taking over something and you've got a slightly different relationship with the author but a lot of people do do it i've just i think i just enjoyed agenting and never mm. never went over
1: mm. yeah that's an interesting thing that you said about editing, because I feel many authors have, like you said, very different types of relationships. I've talked to fellow authors whose agents played a very substantial role in producing the proposal or yeah. even the book from an editing perspective, whereas I felt our relationship was very hands off. <laughs> right, Charlie. Did you read it?
0: That <laughs> <laughs> no, was just because you were so good. Oh, Fine,
1: okay. A plus. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
0: No, I think uh, take to if you take to the task quite quickly and you get uh, the way that you shape your proposal sort of made it made immediate sense and it was such a good extension of what you were of what you were doing, you know. And I think that. It, once you've got the structure of that book the actual the actual writing out of it it's not as te- you know. It's not as text based, and I don't think I could criticise your photography. So you'd uh, have been you'd have been very annoyed. I, I do remember the first novelist I ever represented. We did a we did a, we did a sort of creative writing talk together at his university, and uh, he reminded me that before I offered him representation, I'd already killed off two of the characters in the in the book.
1: That's a pretty big deal. Um, so that's a pretty big editorial hand. Yeah,
0: yeah. So it does. It sort of depends. I mean, if fiction's probably something where. You know, your commercial eye on it might really change, might really change something. Whereas, whereas cookery, I think there are certain sections within a proposal where having that sort of objective eye is, is, is useful because you're playing up, you know, the kind of pitch, elevator pitch aspect.
1: Mm. Well, I wanted to kind of go from where we left off of your career arc. You interned at the Slit Agent. Is that where you ultimately became full-time employee after graduating?
0: No. So luckily they they found me a job. So I worked at one of the oldest literary agencies in London called AM Heath. And then I just really benefited. I had a couple of amazing mentors. So that agency was so well established that it had authors from the 30s. So it represented the George George Orwell estate. That must have
1: been like a dream come true to work somewhere like that
0: it had it had an extraordinary history and bill hamilton ran it and he 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 was was responsible for the oil estate. and even within that just the just the amount of things that came came from it so you know you'd have Play adaptations of 1984 going on in sort of Czechoslovakia and all sorts of different. You saw this sort of the the influence of a particular author, but beca- because they had so many legacy authors, I got, became obsessed with 1930s novelists and would read sort of Patrick Hamilton on my time off. So that in a way. Like satisfied that kind of desire to to read, and it was a great place to to be able to do that and build up a bit of a bit of a knowledge of everything that well I say everything you you tend to read the authors that the the agencies represented, and yeah you get your kind of nourishment that way
1: did you stay at that lit agency at Heath is it called
0: yeah I st- yeah stay there for about five years and then I worked with Ed Victor who was. He sort of, sort of single-handedly changed like literary agenting. So it used to be called C.D. and Tweedy, because it was just it was a bit, it was a bit scruffy, a bit sort of shabby, shabby chic kind of thing.
1: Wait, so C.D. and Tweedy, like literally as in it's seedy and it's a little bit tweety it was just, it
0: was just like you know the tweet i thought
1: that was the name of a firm. So. oh right sorry
0: yeah no it just it, 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 for some reason it had that it had that phrase sort of associated with it and then he he kind of he became the sort of literary agent to the stars so i think in tatler one year he was uh, the second most invited person to a party to parties after elton john and he sort of repped keith richards but also repped iris murdoch and douglas adams you're a Douglas Adams fan, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I did read that book. You're pretty well-versed in your kind of sci-fi.
1: <laughs> right? Yes, I did read that book maybe in high school, a right. long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: But yeah, just, just equally, equally happy in any environment. Absolutely loved loved the job and was kind of Anglo, Anglo-American. So he came over in the 70s and he just made from it America? from America, yeah. started a literary agency and just made it fun every day and absolutely loved it. And so he, we work really closely together. And that's partly why I've always worked in America, because he was just absolutely brilliant at the kind of opening doors there. And it's been so much fun to be able to, to do that.
1: Mm. And uh, you no longer work at his firm, correct?
0: Yes. Yeah. So I started um, BCM, my agency, uh, almost five years ago, no, five and a half years ago now, which is just crazy. But I suppose, I suppose there are a couple of Strange years in the middle of that, weren't there? Mm-hmm.
1: What was that like?
0: Well, it was odd for everyone, wasn't it? But pub- publishing actually had two kind of record breaking years. So people, we had a captive audience, didn't we? we did so you know people actually could, in, in terms of live arts people couldn't go out to theater weren't going out to cinema and now people's habits have, have changed but luckily people seem to pick up the habit of reading
1: during the pandemic during
0: the pandemic mm-hmm. and it's a question of whether it's a question of how long that can the tail yeah exactly yeah so it's an interesting it's an interesting time because you know we're now we're now in a slightly different economic situation yeah. Don't Wait. worry we won't go on too long. as 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 our emails often seem to be <laughs> yeah, sort okay. of sort of mutual commiseration
1: off it too. <laughs> So in case you missed it after working at a couple of rather prestigious well-known agencies Charlie decided to take a leap of faith and start his own agency. Now, as you all know, I always find these types of stories totally fascinating. How do people find the gumption to leave behind what looks to be a sure thing for a seemingly less sure thing? But I guess I was more asking in terms of, you've been working at at a firm or working with pretty established agents who it it sounds like either provided mentorship or leadership or certainly some guidance as you were kind of navigating your career earlier on. Was there any sort of trepidation involved with deciding I'm going to step out on my own and create my own agency?
0: I did feel very confident about the fact that it was the right thing to do. And that was partly because the way the way Ed worked was to sort of partner people up with lots of lots of different people across different media or, or specialists in different areas, so the difference for me was that that was a real the joy of networking and you know, meeting people that were, say, producers or were talent agents or managers, or you know, it, it was just a different way of, of 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 doing the job, which which brought you into contact with loads of different people, and being able to offer that kind of bespoke way of doing it appealed to me. And I ran the the film and TV and Speakers Bureau at the at the company. so we In addition
1: would, to being a lit agent?
0: Yeah, yeah, which was just a great kind of... I mean, it probably packed quite a few years into, into a small space, but I was just loving every minute.
1: One of the big questions, of course, is how Charlie decides who to work with. What are some of the things that lit agents are looking for when identifying talent? Do they need to be celebrities? Do they need to have, like, huge social media following? Do they need to be good writers? Well, here... I get him to spill the details. I guess one of the other things that I wanted to talk about when you we were describing sort of your day-to-day tasks or even just rattling off here the things that lit agents generally do, one of the things that I didn't hear you mention was identifying talent. Hmm. How do you determine who you ultimately want to work with?
0: Yeah, it depends. If it's So sometimes people will be submitting cover letters and making making an approach to agents so that happens more with uh, that always that tends to always happen with fiction whereas non-fiction which is probably the majority of the, the authors that I work with are in that in that area although it's a big you know it's quite a broad broad church that will often be me sort of seeing something that that really interests me like someone's doing a series of lectures say on a particular subject and you think wow that's that's kind of a different way of, of 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 looking at you know, and I think at the moment looking at a particular subject, and I think there's a real appetite for sort of revisionist history and looking at our past in a different way. So serious nonfiction that's that's tackling some of the some of the issues, I guess, that we're facing across the board. I think people are really engaging with that. So there will be people that. I think, have a real voice and then you then you approach them. And then it's a case of, you know, whether they're intrigued about writing a book, how much space they have to do that if they're an academic. So it, it really depends.
1: Do you have to be a good writer?
0: I, I think if if you're an academic, you have to be able to convert that into into something which, you know, the, the layman can pick up and and yeah, make it and have an and have a narrative. The better the writer, obviously, the better the book. But some books can be more, more technical than others, mm. so it sort of depends.
1: Do you feel like the authors need to have some sort of charisma or even a celebrity status or these things that, you know, for some of the people who are listening, they might be interested in writing a book or working with a lit agent? Mm. I mean, are there things that they need to worry about in addition to saying, oh, I think I have a good written work
0: product? Yeah, it's a good point. I, mean, I think publishers are more more and more interested in somebody who already has some kind of existing platform mm. or they have such an extraordinary story that you can't imagine anyone else writing writing something remotely similar. In which case they don't need to have a sort of pre-existing following. If you're in the say on the sort of cookery side, I think more and more they you almost have to have built a certain platform before approaching pr- approaching an agent or a publisher. So that can happen at quite an early point if you've got a really singular focus, but you probably need to have built up something in order to get the most out of it, to be honest. As you know, it's a pretty intense experience.
1: I mean, have you seen it change though over the years? I mean, you've been in this game now for decades. There was no Facebook yeah. <laughs> twenty years ago, so I mean, presumably there was no requirement to have a social media presence back then.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So in terms of cookery, the context was it would either be celebrity cookery that was sort of you know from from television, or it would be chefs that had become the the, the kind of most well known and most respected, running the most respected restaurants. And there was an era where there were very high end restaurant cookery books, and that really has declined. You know, that's, that's very rare for that to happen now. So it's more about the personality of the chef, if, if, if it's chef led and what they're doing in the restaurant and whether it's following a particular style of cooking or cuisine. And then, and then, yeah, as you say, social media like become, I'd, I'd say almost the majority of cookery that's coming through is coming from people who have, you know, successful accounts.
1: Wow. I did not know that. I remember when, I remember like, after we had started the pitch process, and I think we had already signed the book deal, at at a certain point, you said something to me. You said, well, what is your social media plan? <laughs> and I remember feeling extremely anxious about that because I was like, what do you mean? What's my social media plan? Like, it is what it is. I don't need any more pressure. But that is one of the things that stuck inside of my brain during one of our conversations. And it ultimately said, you know, led me to think about doing a TikTok account, which of course radically changed the trajectory of not just the book, but of my career, right? But kind of going back to what you were talking about, just putting to one side the cookery, which I feel like is a a sort of a, not a niche because it is a huge niche, right? But it has its own path, I Mm -hmm. guess, through social media. But some of the other types of books, I know you mentioned you don't do a lot of fiction, but to the extent that there are people who are, you know, believe in their hearts that they are able or have the next great American novel stuck mm. inside their bodies. <laughs> How do they get the attention of a literary agent? I mean, is it literally like, here's my manuscript, read it, please?
0: Yeah, so it's really you know, it's quite a daunting process, but you you start off by writing a cover letter to to an agent. And probably the best thing to do is try and research who the agent that you're targeting represents or, or your favorite novels. or, or if, you, if you have a pitch for the book, then the, the novelist that you're mentioning, you know, you, you probably want to find out who represents them or which agency. And then that process is, is almost taking a, taking a step back and looking at your work, you know, from an objective market perspective. And one thing that is genuinely useful is for authors to look at cover copy that publishers put together on the back of their books to see how they sell it. So, depending on the type of book, if it's a psychological suspense, you want to be pitching comparable books that have done very well in the market, and where where your book both fits in and kind of sets itself apart. But it's a difficult thing to do, because you've just spent so much time you know, honing this thing that's been you know a huge part of your life for often years, and then you're having to reduce that down. I think people rightly find that really difficult. But in terms of a standout cover letter, that's going to make an agent kind of want to read on. And and often that's the basis for how they're thinking about pitching it themselves. And then that becomes like a chain of, of pitching, you know, from the agent. If they, if they take on the author, then they're pitching to the editor. The editor's pitching to their in-house teams and it just goes on to the to, to the booksellers. So that aspect of it is probably quite surprising you know you're suddenly having to do a bit more.
1: I didn't know that people actually even read cover letters. So you're saying that the cover letter can make a big difference.
0: <laughs> I think cover letters is absolutely key. I mean it, it shows how the author's thinking about what they're doing and that in itself sort of speaks volumes because they're then going to move on to the next part of the process and you know they're going to they they're going to want to make the most out of their out of the campaign and it's a difficult thing to ask someone to to want to do all of those things at once, but I think I think that's probably been an area of publishing that's changed. I mean, I know there are there are older authors that find it surprising they have to promote their books now, yeah. uh, but <laughs> they kind of have to do it. Yeah,
1: uh-huh. we'll talk about that because I definitely want to get into it. I I guess if you know or if you can share, on average, how often do you get? cold cover letters from people that you've never heard of don't even know saying hi I'd, I'd love for you to consider working with
0: me i think i get about four to six submissions a day
1: a day yeah
0: <laughs> i mean it's, it, it very there are, there are times of the year where there are i would say four to six is probably on the higher side and then you know there are particular seasons where it's quieter but but yeah i mean a lot of people a lot of people do write in a lot of people wrote wrote over lockdown which was a good opportunity for them to get an idea which probably had been sort of gestating for a long time. Right. Yeah. I mean,
1: so you're literally at least receiving over a thousand of these you know, cover letters per year. Do you literally read through all of them or do you get through to the manuscript in most cases?
0: It does depend on the cover letter. Sometimes, wow, I mean, so that's uh,
1: a huge gatekeeper. I didn't realize that.
0: It's it's an interesting it's an interesting one. I mean, it, obviously, they are describing the book that you're about to you're about to read. Maybe read, and it may and it, it may be like th- there may be areas which you don't particularly cover, so you're not you're probably unlikely to to read that much of that manuscript. But for the most part, you it, it's just a great indicator of. And it it should entice you to to want to read on.
1: Want to turn that page just like a book. I guess the other question that I would have then is what are some of the mistakes that authors should avoid Mm. when they're trying to present themselves to a literary agent?
0: I think being relative, trying to be be quite humble, I guess, about what, you know... I think being o- overtly impressed with what you've done possibly isn't, and that, you know, at that, least with Charlie brothers. So no, well, no, so, so, so no, sometimes, sometimes people go, I don't really need, I don't really need an agent, but you know, so that's, whatever, that's whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you say doesn't mean anything to me, but you know, I'm
1: going to take your time anyway. And so
0: you're like, I'm not, I wonder what, you know, you're thinking about the, the sort of personality, I guess. And, and, and also you're sort of thinking ahead, like, you know you want to be able to get on you want to be able to gel with 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 someone but yeah there are i mean i think probably spelling and grammar mistakes get slightly exaggerated because you're approach you're quite querying a literary agent and you kind of want those things to be quite tight but yeah i mean i think being pithy being able to condense quite a lot into a short space is is probably quite crucial so yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to sort of pages long and you don't want intimate details about, you know, that, that person's life, p- particularly if it's not germane to the, to it's the book. The book right. And when they were physical submissions, people used to send odd stuff. They used to send like cigarette butts if it was like a murder mystery and you'd just be like, <laughs> or, or it would be like the sort of lipstick on a page. You just sort of, yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, my God. Luckily,
0: luckily, all, all submissions are, are emailed now. Are digital now? now. Yeah. <laughs> by <Doug>. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's
1: so funny. Loyal listeners, y'all know that one of the books that I attribute to literally changing my life was written by a no-name first-time author, a stay-at-home new mom who, between changing diapers and breastfeeding, typed up a manuscript, the story for which she apparently had a dream about she then sent that manuscript out to 10 literary agents that she found literally by googling it on the internet. A few years later, she was famous with a capital F. I wanted to ask Charlie whether fairy tales like that actually happen. I guess, you know, one of my favorite stories of, I hesitate to call it one of my favorite books, but it it was a book that had an enormous impact on me. And, And for those of you who've, been listening to the podcast for a while you probably can guess what that book is and it's called Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always a little bit embarrassed by how much impact that book had on my life, but it's undeniable. But one of the reasons I think it was so memorable to me was of course the incredible story of that author mm. she claims to have dreamt the story, like Stephen King or something, and then wrote out this you know massive manuscript after having never written anything in her life before had no idea how to submit it get it published and literally googled you know lit agents Mm. and got a list of them you know 10 of them i think and then just sent her book out to all 10 right and now look at her look at her book she's created you know an empire how likely is that scenario today
0: i didn't actually know that she so so there's it was just, it was just the manuscript. She's like, there, she there is
1: that a manuscript? I mean, maybe she put together a cover letter. I don't know, but I got the sense from her blog that she had no idea what she was doing. Mm. She just had this story. She had never written anything before. She wrote it down on paper, had a manuscript, and she just sent it around. She, hadn't, she didn't do any of the requisite research that you recommended. Yeah. She probably didn't look at the covers and the jackets of the books that, you know, she was reading at the time. She just picked the 10 biggest lit agents and just sent them out. Kind of like your total cold call type of situation. And I think when I heard that story, I remember feeling so inspired. I was yeah. like, okay, like if this woman could do this, then maybe one day I could write a novel and I would just like literally send it out to 10 random people and, and then have a movie deal.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I think if you've got the, you know, if you've really got the goods, then, you know, that kind of, that kind of situation can happen and it probably still it probably still would happen because if it's a surefire hit you you'd, you'd want to think that agents would would still realize that you know there are there are other stories where the famous sort of turn down stories mm. of jk rowling sort of got rejected sort of dozens of times before before breaking through lord of the flies actually same same thing
1: really i didn't yeah. know that about lord of the flies
0: it was completely different the um, the plot line was completely different like it started off with them Sort of before before the crash, ah. Huh. But anyway, they, they they sort of edited quite a lot out. But no, I think I think that's I think the Twilight story could still happen for sure.
1: Is it more likely to happen though? Have the barriers to entry been lowered since she wrote that book? I mean, that was over twenty years ago. I think.
0: Mm. I think there's a lot more creative writing schools, so I think there's a lot more that's coming through that's sort of being being vetted, and and that can be a good that can be a really good idea for an author, an aspiring author to just go through that process of sharing their work with a group talking about and getting used to talking about their work, sort of almost, you know, almost with that requisite distance from it. And, and, and so there's a lot more access to that now, Mm -hmm. which is a good thing, but because they've proliferated so much, you know, you've got to, you've got to really pick the one that's going to, the one that's going to help you. Mm -hmm. I think what, I think what's difficult is debut novelists have to be so it has to be so polished sort of when it goes out that actually it used to be that a publisher would see something really impressive about someone's debut and then they go oh right well I'm going to nurture I'm going to nurture this author but now it's much more sort of debut oriented so they sort of expect to have the you know the 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 finished article Mm -hmm. and so there's more resources for an aspiring author author to to go to but the the yeah, the, the, the barrier the to entry is probably barrier higher. The creative barrier
1: is probably higher. That's so interesting. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, I, I, I remember when I wanted to become a poet, I had all these aspirations of becoming a serious poet at some point, I think you know, probably a decade ago. And I submitted a lot of my poetry to a number of different journals, got rejected at almost all of them. But I remember one editor... Took the time to send me an email, a very long one. And he said, You know, we're rejecting your submission. It's not going to make it into the journal, but I wanted you to know that your poetry is beautiful. Mm. It's very, very moving. And if you don't mind, here are my edits. And he went through and he annotated my poem. And it was a long one. And I, I have to tell you, I, I never appreciated anything so much in my entire life. I mean, it was one of the most like beautiful and generous things that I'd ever experienced a, as a writer. And I was wondering, how often, if ever, do you take the time to really go through in detail? Mm. Your work is good, but here's why I don't think we can work together.
0: If you see talent, then y- y- you want to you want to give you want to give something back. So. I think, I think the problem is just justifying the time to do it.
1: Yeah, which is why I found that yeah. gesture so generous.
0: It's, uh, but I think it, I think it probably reflected the the fact that actually there was genuine there was a there was a genuine sort of sense that what you what you submitted showed real promise and talent, and that's that's when I'll want to sort of give give some feedback, give some advice, and so and I'll always say in that scenario. If you decide to rewrite this or if you decide you're moving on to another di- idea, I'd love to I'd love to stay in touch. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the the difference is you'll be sending a much more tailored individual reply, even if you're not actually offering representation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time people do people do then come back fra- back from that. And, you know, they, that that can be almost more satisfying because you've gone through that process.
1: Mm. Mm, that's beautiful. So. Let's move on to the next stage of literary agent slash or literary agent partnership with author. You've identified the talent. You've decided we gel together. Let's work on something together. Do you always know exactly what that person intends to work on at the time you decide to represent them?
0: No, definitely not. I mean, especially if if someone is say p- producing particular content and then they they they're trying to find a way of converting that that can often that can often take several iterations sort of going back and forth and you just sort of have several breakthrough moments and that's great because you sort of see someone finding their voice and and then suddenly, you suddenly you've got that momentum. Suddenly, you've got that thing that makes you've got that reason for something to convert from something which is more small form to this to this much bigger kind of volume based approach.
1: So I have so many questions about that, and I just want to clarify when you say content. We're, I think a lot of the people who listen to to my you know, content, my content thinks of content <laughs> mm. as, you know, social media, videos, yeah. YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. That's what. That's why they call us content creators. But I'm assuming you're talking about not just that, you're talking about television content, radio content. You could be talking about a series of lectures, as you alluded to, a yeah. podcast. I mean, any kind of content, trying to distill sort of the assets in that and put it in a different form.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It could be... You know, you could be trying to find. So you could have an expert who's who sort of has some TV, who does some TV work. Say, say a, a doctor who, do, who does a who does a deep dive into, say, I was I was working work with an author who did a deep dive into sort of clean eating and and sort of unpacking the sort of myths from the truth, and it it got a lot of traction. And then we were thinking, well, what? How do we? What do we extrapolate from this and make into a much bigger, much bigger idea? So we had the sort of basis of something, but the 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 overall book was was a much wider it was a much wider study. Mm. But it gave you that sort of initial idea that actually, you know, that's something which people are interested in. How can we how can we give give them more and give them more detail and do what a book is essentially there, there to do is 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 to kind of give someone's expertise and really be able to answer. Like several questions.
1: So when you're approaching these potential authors who have caught your attention because of the content that they're creating or because they've submitted a stellar cover letter and or a manuscript, how do you convince them that they should write a book? Mm. And I, and I ask this because I, you know, I'm friends with a lot of content creators who, many of them in the cooking space, and to me, I'm always like, well, it's obvious you should do a cookbook. But a lot of them aren't convinced that that's actually a beneficial thing for their career arc or for any reason. Putting to one side the financial aspects of it, which I can sort of understand, but it's always baffled me that people are completely uninterested <laughs> in yeah. writing a book. And maybe that's because I, like you, love literature. I've always loved books. I've loved reading. And it's such a huge part of my Life and, and what I love to do, but maybe if you could just talk about how do you convince people that they should write a book when they're on the shelf about it?
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. So it, I, I think it is case by case. So someone someone who's less sort of coveting of the of the sort of physical object and they just haven't had that kind, of, they're not sort of steeped in that sort of personal tradition. Do you know? Then you're making a slightly different case. You're making a you you're saying that this could help in in several different ways like a book can really help with your general kind of gravitas gravitas and credibility if you if you if you're working with a major publisher you know it 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 can, it can just give more range and breadth to the kind of opportunities that you might that you might have so so it sort of has a it has a hidden value on top of whatever whatever deal you end up striking with a publisher and then with someone who you're interested in what they might write you know they may have put out something that was like an idea on, on, on Twitter and you go, you know, do you think that can actually work over, over book length? And it might not be that original idea that then is the thing that becomes the book. But you start a conversation and you get to know what is important to that person. And sometimes that can be a real slow burner. It can take it can actually take years. Sometimes back to the the, the series of lectures was interesting because the author whose, whose, whose book I was just showing you had. Just hosted a series of lectures on Shakespeare and race at the Globe Theatre, and actually had been thinking of expanding that idea into a book, and had been working with with academic publishing in academic publishing for years. So we literally had the same idea at the same time. So it was just literary kismet. Exactly, beautifully, (laughs) beautifully worded. So, so it just depends. But you you want to give the impression that. A, you want to say, look, these are the publishers that I think would be best suited to this type of book. And this is what you'd hope to hope to be aiming for. These are these are the kinds of books that are doing really well at the moment. You know, have they have you engaged with them? What sort of book do you want to write? And then you can sort of slowly it sort of seeps in that that might that might work.
1: You know, it's funny what you said about that example you used, or somebody posts something on Twitter and you kind of pull that thread, if you will, to determine whether or not that has the ability to sustain a book length Mm. and continue capturing people's attention. This is the second time I've actually heard of that. And, And the reason is because I literally spoke with someone a couple weeks ago who signed a book deal based upon a viral tweet they literally tweeted something that's and even, even
0: better than twilight <laughs>
1: yes i know that's very
0: very economical so,
1: so do you literally like mine people's tweets to be like is there an author in here that i can pluck out of twitter land
0: <laughs> I, I can't claim to have ever, ever done that uh, but you sometimes you can have someone who works in i, I don't know somebody, someone who's working in government and they're passing something quite specific and it's it's an issue that you think wow they're they're obviously in a position where they're expert on this and they've just posited a question which actually deserves you know a real inquiry so yeah, it's probably quite rare.
1: Mm, mm. Well, I thought her story was amazing when she explained it to me. And I was like, well, can I see your writing? I want to read. And she like, I don't have any. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was just a tweet that went wow. viral. And, and and she signed a two book deal. And I think that's pretty remarkable. I, Sorry,
0: and it was based on the tweet. So it was, it was nonfiction.
1: Yeah, it's a nonfiction based upon this tweet. It was a tweet about how, you know, the situation with, overregulating to put it nicely the books that we find in our libraries was hurtful to her because she grew up inside libraries and how the library was this very safe space mm. for her and now she feels like it's under attack and it was you know retweeted by many many libraries and librarians who understandably are feeling a lot of heat these mm. days and so yeah and now she has this book deal and I just think that's such a remarkable story and it speaks to this idea that I love, you know, Simu Liu, he talks about in his memoir as well, that one of the reasons he believes that he was able to land his sort of you know, star-making role in Shang-Chi was because he tweeted about it. Mm -hmm. He put it out there. He said, hey, I think it would be really cool to have an Asian-American Marvel comic hero movie, right? I'm not good with the lingo on that, but that's generally what he tweeted. And a year later, that's exactly what he's doing. And he talks about how sometimes it's important to not hold your dreams so closely Mm. to yourself that you don't share them. If you don't share them in a broad way, then you are missing out on this opportunity to work with people who might help you Mm. if they knew of your dream, you know, they can't help you if they don't know that that's what your dream is. Right. And so I just think it's, you know, Twitter is such a fun example or threads, whatever you want to use right now, is such a fun example because it's it's literally a way to broadcast your dream in some cases to the widest available audience. And you never know. There might be yeah. somebody out there who's saying, You know what? I think you're onto something and I want to help you achieve that. I did want to ask. Have you ever severely regretted rejecting <laughs> someone who <laughs> wanted to work with you? <laughs>
0: yes. Or or there have been instances where, for whatever reason, you, you haven't quite hit on the right, it hasn't quite worked in terms of where a particular manuscript's been at. And then, you know, someone's gone back to the drawing board and, you know, they've either got, they've either used some of the kind of, I guess the kind of creative back and forth and worked on something totally new. And, you know, with every reason gone on to, to kind of query again, because you sort of, you sort of reached the end of your kind of creative, you know, and then you, you, you want to start on something really confidently and that, that is that has because you're creatively involved it means more mm. and and then part of you is is really delighted for the individual because because you've got on but then there's obviously part of you that would like to have been involved in seeing the seeing the thing come to fruition mm. but
1: yeah. is it anybody we know <laughs>
0: I don't think so. Okay. No. Well, then it can't uh, be
1: that big of a regret.
0: <laughs> no, exactly.
1: It's not like J.K. Rowling JK. or
0: something. Oh, right. Yeah, nice. No, 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 I mean, yeah. And they're likely to be debuts that haven't come out yet. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I mean, I'm hoping so I'm hoping Stephanie for Stephanie Meyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping for success within reason, yeah. Stop
1: it, stop it. <laughs> okay, so you've identified the person you want to work with and you have ironed out sort of a framework for what that project is. Is going to be that you're ultimately going to work on then take us through how do we create a proposal or a pitch
0: so then you're i, th- I think you've got the you've, you've got the genesis for for what the book is and then if it's if it's non-fiction you, you come up with a proposal and the proposal will include a kind of overview of the idea that's the enticing kind of one to two pager it's often quite a difficult thing to put together so some some people do that last some people you know lead with that, and that helps them to to come through right, with the rest, it. but on top of that, you need a clear chapter structure. you often need a sample chapter or two depending on depending on the project and then you need a kind of a really interesting about the author and about the market section and about the market section is that thing I guess we were talking about earlier it 's like what are the other books that are comparable in the market and obviously an agent's like you know going to be more involved on 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 those aspects because they should know what is appealing to, to publishers and getting, getting to sit up and take notice because they, they want to emulate the success of other, of other titles. So it's a bit, so it's a bit of a mix. You're giving a, you're giving a sense of the voice of the writer in that sample material. The, the overview can also sort of be... It's, it's a way to make sure you're answering all the questions that a publisher can have about what the market potential is of the book. So the more you work on a proposal usually you know the better the result is going to be and also then an author then has more kind of creative control over what that book is when it's when it's actually when you when you're commissioned by a publisher because you've got something to you've got something very tangible to sort of fall back on.
1: That's such an important point. And I think that oftentimes, especially newbie authors or debut authors, they don't think about that. They're so focused on simply getting a deal Mm. that that's, you know, sort of all that matters. And especially if they have a robust social media following or other type of content that they can fall back on and say, well, you know, this publisher is going to want to sign me because I have 10 million followers on YouTube. I don't really need a very ironclad proposal If you don't pay attention to it on the front end, it's very possible that somewhere along the process, your original vision gets diluted Mm. to such an unrecognizable degree. And at that point, like you said, you don't have a paper trail to say, no, hey, we were on the same page. This is how we all started together. I think that's such an important key point. How important is that proposal, though? I've often been told, particularly if you're a debut author, this is your first time project. You know, I've been told with regard to television, and maybe you can speak to this given your experience, your first pitch for a TV show it's very important mm. that it's good. Like it's really good. Cause this is your first impression to the world of producers and networks. And once they pass, they will likely pass for good. Yeah. Is it like that with your first proposal? Does it need to be pretty much like hundred percent? This is the best proposal ever <laughs> that I can produce at this time.
0: I I think you want to be, you want to be feeling confident about it. You know, you want to have had several iterations. Often, if there's a bit of, if there's been some difficulty, it's often worth the the payoff to to really get it all singing together. So again, it's like, it's thinking, is this, is this strong enough that it can, it can answer the question from not just the editor, but the, marketeer for the book and the, and the, and the sales reps that are, you know. Is so the it,
1: proposal often shared beyond the editor?
0: So yes. Yeah, so the, the editor has to share it amongst everyone. So again, I mean, I used to, I mean, there is sort of publishing folklore where People used to do deals off the back of a, a napkin at, yes. at long at long lunches i don't I sort of missed out when i when I when I started there was just a, there was a recession going on and everyone thought that ebooks were going to take over you oh, know wow. so there were just harbingers of doom on all, on all sides so I you know my site's set quite low like, well everything's a bonus after this so it used to be the editors were the, the the gatekeepers and now arguably like the people who are really pulling the strings are the people who kind of have the purse strings oh. so so mm-hmm. I, I guess that's made – and I think that's made editors slightly different creatures within the sort of publishing ecosystem because they're, they're having to sell themselves – they're almost pitching themselves as a creative partner, but then they definitely need to have everyone, you know, all, their, all the rest of their team fully behind it. And that's how, they, that's how they actually put together their figures for what their advanced level will be. So, so the more hardworking a proposal, the more likely it is you're going to get an auction – and, you know, that, that's when you can really maximize your, your position. So,
1: And when you're talking about auction, you're talking about more than one imprint or publishing house bidding for the right to publish your work? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that is an ideal situation. Those of you who listened to last week's episode know that my first draft of the proposal did not include all the parts that Charlie just described. Mainly, it was an introduction, lots of photos, and then screenshots of my Instagram. (laughs) At the time, Charlie kindly suggested I rework the draft to include all the parts. But maybe times have changed, especially in this digital age. I thus wanted to pick his brain once more. Is it really all necessary? How important is it that the proposal follow the template that you described, which is, you know, mm. chapter structures, an introduction, a very interesting about the author market competition, like those types of things.
0: I've made it sound really formulaic, haven't I?
1: <laughs> and there are templates on the internet. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. And uh, there, are, there are different approaches. Like some sometimes you could write, you can write sort of mini pricey of a whole book. And so you give... Because you want to give more than just what people think is the is, is 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 the kind of meatiest, I guess like aspect of it. So so there are different there are different ways of doing it. Some sometimes you can you can do something more creative. You can make a video. Really, have
1: you done one of those?
0: I've done them. I, I mean, I think it's easier to do it with authors that to, to say say have been doing quite a lot of media around a particular subject, and then. It it sort of draws it sort of draws people in to take to take that approach and sort of it's 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 an invitation to a to a further conversation. But for the most part, I think setting something down in writing for for some of the other reasons we described gives you more overall control.
1: In the future. And again, this is just to clarify for nonfiction, a little bit different, I'm assuming, for fiction.
0: Yeah, for fiction, it has to be the whole novel. Wow. So it's
1: you can't just do like here's two chapters of the novel that I would like to write. Can you please pay me to write the rest? Of it? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I, 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 you, you can as as an author who is already is already published has um, like
1: twenty New York Times bestsellers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We
0: might we might do it. Yeah, <laughs> but but generally, yeah, debut and I, you know, it, it's it's it, I always I always sympathize with authors for that because. But then if you're writing, if you're writing like commercial suspense, you know, the, the ending is going to be possibly the most important part. So you kind of, you need to know, you need to know that in order to commission it. So yeah, it's just a unfortunate kind of prerequisite.
1: So I remember very distinctly when I wrote my book proposal, I was like, I'm not going to follow the template. I'm going to do my own thing. And it was pretty much 40 pages of my Instagram posts. literally. <laughs> and I was like, here you go, Charlie. <laughs> And I remember you were so nice. You're like, Oh, this is so great. And so brilliant and blah, blah, blah. And then I remember I went to my friend's house and he showed me his book proposal and I became very nervous. I was like, Oh, you know, maybe I really should have, have done it a little bit differently. So I went back and I asked you, Hey, Charlie, just tell me honestly, like, are there problems with the book proposal? Do you think it could need a little work? And I you were so nice about it. And you're like, well, I, you know, I think we could tweak things here and there. And by the end of our conversation, it became very clear that I just needed to do the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> you're like like, maybe you could cut out some of these photos
0: I do I do remember the. I do remember the posts that were that were around a
1: little extraneous but maybe could you describe because I think people would be so interested to hear like what did you think when you first saw my if you can remember even like that first proposal which was I genuinely think it was like a page and then of writing and then like 40 pages of just screenshots of my Instagram posts.
0: I didn't. I, I wasn't overly concerned because I knew that that would then develop into develop into something. And actually, at that stage, you're you're wanting to just draw out more. So, you know, there's no reason not to be encouraging around that. Plus, I think we'd spoken quite quite a lot, and you were you were articulating what you wanted to do, and it was clear that it was clear that you were going to be able to write in a singular really intriguing voice and it was just a question of getting that down bit by bit on the page
1: was it hard for you to wait for me i felt like at a certain point it was like it must be like pulling teeth with me because it took me a year to write that thing
0: i don't i don't remember i don't remember it taking that long actually it a really long time <laughs>
1: Especially because I had to redo it after you were like, I think once
0: it. you did, I think once you did the redo, then you that kind of, you got, you got, and then you were like, I, I I've got it now. <laughs> yeah. and it, there's always like that, that moment where I are like, I, I've, I've got it. And that's, that's, that's quite nice. And then it was like <laughs> rocket fuel.
1: I remember one time you were trying to encourage me and you're like, think of it as a legal brief, Joanne. You have <laughs> deadlines. You can't just like ignore <laughs> them.
0: <laughs> just got, got you on the legal, on the legal loophole. Yeah. I actually, yeah, whenever, yeah, if ever I mention like a legal term, (laughs) usually, usually did the trick. It's a quid pro quo, Joanne. (laughs) Some due diligence required here. Uh
1: (laughs) Okay, so we get the proposal together, then... What sort of magic are you working? Because to me, it really was like a magician. I mean, you said, "Okay, I'm going to send these out to people," and then I heard hear back from you a week later. Okay, we have an offer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, "What sort of magic?" See, you got you you
0: got the proposal good. There you know, go. so there there it <laughs> that is. That
1: was the magic. But I mean, yeah, I never really peeked behind that curtain to see what you were doing at that during those whatever eight days.
0: So then it's a mix of a you're selecting the the editors specific editors and then imprints at the at the publishers that you think best suited so and then you know depending on the specific editor it's a mixture of you're sending a, a submission pitch by email so that's a sort of further pitch on top of your proposal or you know you decide that you that you really want to call someone up and you know to say actually we had this conversation like six months ago and you were looking for something really different in a particular space and I think I've got something incredible here and you know you then you then tee them up for for the submission so it's a it's a mix of it's a mix of but it's always like you know it's it's like pitch time it's the fun it's the exciting time and suddenly you're suddenly you're there but it's it's horrible for an author because you know suddenly the, the the work has gone out and and sometimes it can take a week which is great and then sometimes it can take it can take it can take over a month it can take months And but it's still and and you can still get a great response eventually, because the moment that first indicator of interest comes back, you you've got something to, you know, got something to build on. And so you can tell publishers and suddenly, you know, you can you can have a number of people coming back at that stage. So I think that question of faith is 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 hard for a, for an author because they're they're the ones who've just put so much into that and you don't you don't know it can be relatively arbitrary sometimes in terms of timing and you can't conclude that much from it but yeah basically I'm sort of prodding away with th- Anything that I anything that I can mm. to to get to sort of get these responses, or if it's getting really exciting, then you know you're already strategizing about how you're going to kind of go Leverage, through the various yeah. processes, you know, to to get the best result. So,
1: mm. how often do you see an auction situation for debut authors?
0: I'd say if if something sell if something sells, then it's sort of sometimes you can cut off an auction situation by getting someone to pay. So they call it a preempt. But you can sort of almost you can work towards a preempt. If you think someone's going to be the best partner, mm-hmm. you, you're then working towards what the market value for the book is anyway, as if you had an auction. So, yeah, you, 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 you can you can do it that way. Usually, if there's interest, other people will declare. Like you'd be surprised if someone's not declaring some interest. Mm-hmm. So that can often lead to lead to another lead, and then you set a deadline. So. But yeah, I mean, and some of the time it can just be that one particular publisher has been looking looking for a book and, and they're the ones that, you know, they're the ones that end up commissioning it and they, they sort of take it off the table quite early.
1: Do you ever find yourself in a situation where a publisher is interested, but in your head, you're thinking, I don't think this is the right partner for my particular author?
0: Yes, I think I think you can have that. And then, I think you need, to, you need to just have a very clear line of, of communication with the author. I mean, I think you need to be able to say, look, you know, for X, Y, Z reason, this is, this is what you'd put together. This could be a likely scenario for the book. And then, you can, and then you can make a decision.
1: Okay. The moment you've all been waiting for, a discussion on the numbers. What kind of author can a first-time author expect. So once you get into a situation where publishers have shown interest and, you know, you're in an auction situation or you're trying to, you know, frame a negotiation that sort of nudges one particular Mm. publisher to the fore, can you describe like numbers? Because I'm sure many, many people are interested in hearing, well, what are the numbers? Like, When I first, for example, was looking into signing a book deal, the the proposal had already gone out. You had taken it out. I remember Anthony and I were like Googling, what should we expect in book advances? And I remember thinking to myself, I think it's going to be like (laughs)
0: $5,000. <laughs> well, you did. You did the right. You did the right googling then yeah, to uh, to like, set expectations. It was like five
1: thousand dollars, maybe at the most, like fifteen thousand. <laughs> and I didn't share any of this with you because I was like, I'm just let Charlie do his thing. <laughs> but I was like five to 15000 dollars. Now, obviously, I was ridiculously floored when you came back with the initial offer. But you know, without going into the specifics, because I'm not sure that we can. Mm. You know, like in general, you know, what can a first time author expect?
0: I think it really depends what they're writing. So so there are some areas of publishing that just generally don't go on at the same level of advance but again if you if you have an auction situation something which starts off very low can 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 literally go 10, 20 times where it where it began. So I'm not trying to avoid answering this question.
1: <laughs> it at can all. range anywhere from five thousand dollars to six figures. I think.
0: I think. I think. Yeah. I mean. I think non-fiction. You can. If if there are things that if the, if there are comparable examples and you you have a sense of where the market is for that book, you you can you can probably say where you're kind of aiming to get to a little bit more confidently. But I think yeah, and and also commercial publishing you want to have a result where where publishers are thinking this is this is the best possible that's that's the the job as an agent to engineer the situation so that a publisher is paying what they think the best Mm. scenario for a book is but they really yeah range it can range anywhere from the four figures to the seven figures and you know everything in between
1: Okay. Okay. So maybe not the answer you were expecting or wanting, but probably the most accurate and truthful one that Charlie could give. If you want a little bit more detail on what I received as a first time cookbook author, head over to the last podcast episode. Have you ever recommended against taking the highest offer to an author? And the reason I ask is that for me, I, you know, again, I was extremely pleased with my advance, but I also know, having spoken to a couple of my author friends, that it was by no means the highest offer Mm -hmm. that would have been available for a first time cookbook author, right? But I was actually kind of glad. I, I, when you, Mm. you know, and just to be very frank with everyone, you know, Charlie came back with multiple different numbers that kept getting higher, and I started to get a little stressed out. It's like I don't want them to be too I high. Remember,
0: I remember I remember me saying that. <laughs> yeah. I <was> like, don't <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry, Charlie, because I know you get a cut of it. <laughs> I don't want it to be too high because I, you know, at a certain point, then there's an expectation tied to that, yes. you know? And as a first-time author, I was so nervous. I was already, you know, saddled with crazy amounts of imposter syndrome. I was like, I think I deserve (laughs) $5,000.
0: I'll take five.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I was worried that, well, like how many books am I going to need to sell? (laughs) Like to, to,
0: no, definitely. (laughs) That's a, that's a very, that's a very real thing. And when it, that, that can turn out really badly for authors, you know, because the, the level of hype and expectation around the book then becomes, it it becomes an albatross. And you know, actually it affects where you go where you go next. So it's it it's it's not something not to think about. But on the flip side, a publisher's then, you know, committed in every way to a project. But I think the original question was That's have I have I have I advised someone to go with a lower offer? And I have. Often often that will be as a result of that person having met it will be that there are there are close offers and you know you've got your best offers and you know if you've structured it in a way where you you have you said i'm not taking I'm not necessarily taking the highest offer it was down to the author's discretion and there have been a few instances where the meetings have been so much better with one mm-hmm. publisher that you know they're at similar levels and 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 that's what that's what the author decides
1: so I would imagine one of the things that can be leveraged for a higher offer is a person's social media following if they have you know, mm-hmm. 10 million TikTok followers or YouTube subscribers. That's certainly something I'm assuming is you know part of these negotiations. But, yeah, you know, one of the things that I always go out of my way to say is, you know, I had less than 40,000 Instagram followers when I signed my book deal. So it didn't seem, at least at that time, you know, that was a few years ago that, you know, 100,000 followers yes. was necessary. Yeah. Do you think that's changed?
0: I think it's become slightly more of a of a sort of consistent theme that that in order to get a get a kind of get the kind of deal that's really gonna gonna help you launch your career you might want to wait longer just to just to get up but it can be that like you have such a singular approach which you did and you also had a very very strong aesthetic and beautiful storytelling and people were People were enraptured by that. That was a, that was a separate thing to the following.
1: Thirty-seven thousand people <laughs> were enraptured by it.
0: Yeah, but but also, y- you you then had a concept which was then different to anything that was out there currently. So, I think that was another thing that publishing was probably doing a little bit more was saying, "What haven't we? Where where have we over published, and where where are we underrepresented?" Mm-hmm. And that comes into that comes into their decision-making. And I think that's still that's still the case. I mean, there are some cuisines that are probably overpublished still, almost to the point now where people are deliberately looking for things that could could gather, like, extra momentum because mm-hmm. they just mm-hmm. literally haven't been represented. represented before. So I do think it's a sort of interesting space. But, yeah, I, I think given the number of authors that are coming through from social media you're looking at you're looking at trying to find a point of difference within the proposal that that's really going to do the do the thing that's partly the traditional market and partly the partly leaning into the audience that's already there and that that's a sort of that's quite an interesting middle ground that i don't think has completely settled itself yet
1: how much intention do you put into lining up a roster where you can look at that and say, you know what, I have a pretty diverse group of clients, mm. you know, whether it's in point of view, <sighs> subject matter, certainly experience, you know, cultural backgrounds. I mm. mean, you just mentioned, hey, Korean food wasn't as represented at the time. I can certainly attest to that because I looked for it yeah. You yeah. Know, at the time. Certainly Korean vegan food was just non-existent at that time, at least in the, the book space here in, in the English language, as far as I could tell. Is that something that's important to you when you're considering again that talent pool?
0: Definitely. I mean, I think it's also a huge privilege to have the the idea that you're. I mean, I I've 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 always thought of literary aging is sort of like it's like a magpie education. You're kind of you're sort of a sponge for. People who've got something different and interesting to say. Tinjang. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks.
1: <laughs> Charlie is really good at making tinjang cheer everyone. <laughs> because of me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, I totally broke your train of
0: thought. <laughs> uh-huh. No, I'm still embarrassed.
1: Okay, so the inside joke here is that prior to recording the podcast, Charlie was telling me what his favorite recipe from my cookbook was. And for the life of me, I had no idea what he was saying. At first, we thought he was actually referring to somebody's name. But eventually, we realized he was just saying, <laughs> I, th- I,
0: I think being able to be able to work with people that sort of educate you. I mean, it's sort of it's this sort of learning experience that comes through. So it's, it it just becomes a way of living life in a way. And so the the more diverse the voices, the more you're learning how to navigate your own your own life and various issues around that. So you become you become more expert no, you become better read in areas that you might not have might not have discovered.
1: Mm. Sounds so much like being a trial lawyer, a litigator. Right, yeah. You learn about so many random things like how to maximize the use of a washing machine, <laughs> how not to build a staircase, <laughs> uh, what kind of paper to use, <laughs> or just like random bits of knowledge. Because like you said, I'm a magpie of all of these different pools of education mm. by virtue of the clients that I, you know, have had the honor of working with. So moving forward, you secure the deal. One year later, you signed the contract because that, as, as I learned, is Does the take a while. average time to go from so-called hitting, you know, making a deal and actually signing the deal. So let's, you know, you've moved on from there. Let's talk about actually working with your authors to write the book. Mm. What do you find to be the most challenging part about that process?
0: Yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be that you're suddenly suddenly then into that next phase, and so you've you've had a proposal, you've you've had, but then you know you've got a different relationship with your publishing editor, and you've still got another yet another kind of creative leap to make, and it can either be that you're making quite minor edits, Mm. so with, with with fiction, you know, publishers sort of commissioned commission the novel as is but there'll still be rounds of edits but it's sort of it's slightly more contained often but with with non suddenly you're writing you're writing the book and that can take on a really different shape from the indicator that you've given so I think sometimes it's good to sort of send early material to your agent you can sort of go back and forth on it potentially sometimes you've got that really good rapport with an editor where you just send it to the editor and the agent at the same time and it's you know here's here's some opening here's some opening sample material what do you you know what do you think that way you you're not sort of sending yourself away for that deadline date that's sort of in 18 months time and then potentially coming up with something which isn't going to isn't going to necessarily work so I think it depending it just depends on the some authors prefer to work that way and just produce you know the finished text.
1: Do you ever wish that they hadn't? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm trying to think whether that's worked out really. No, I don't. I don't think so. I think sometimes I think sometimes authors are surprised by the amount of feedback that then comes back. It's like, and, and in the language of delivering a manuscript. Uh, you know it's a certain level of words that doesn't necessarily mean it's 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 near its finished form yeah. and it's quite difficult to give a precursor to that you don't want to say oh you know you, you might have to have several versions of of this but that can just be part of the part of the learning curve to get onto that second version where actually you kind of iron out quite a lot of what isn't quite right
1: i remember when i received my first round of feedback from lucia I went home and I cried. (laughs) Yeah, And I remember, like, I don't know if I said anything to Anthony, but I remember telling myself I was such a fool. I thought that I could quit my lawyer job and just write full time. Well, I've now just received confirmation that that was a pipe dream. I can never be a full time author. I'm a terrible writer. This is never going anywhere. I, I was certain when, you know, but that's, partly my personality I'm I'm like always doomsdaying everything and you know slight criticism turns into like oh you suck (laughs) immediately
0: you're your own harshest critic (laughs) we'll turn that around How, how how do you feel about that now
1: I mean I think that number one I think you know Lucia's suggestion that we include, you know, 25 more recipes was a good one. Because I think it would have been too light if mm-hmm. we had gone with just the original, which I think was like 50. I mean, 50 recipes in a cookbook is just doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So in that respect, it was right. But you know, her recommendation at the time was to cut out most of the writing. And I took that as an indication that my writing sucked. Mm. I think that's pretty un- understandable, especially since I was a first time author, and I wasn't a creative writer, I was a legal writer. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I was happy to receive, like, working feedback as in, let's take this writing and yeah. let's make it better. But when she said, let's just cut it all out, of course, that was a very different kind of feedback. Ultimately, we ended up putting most of it back in, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, I, it, you know, working with her to put it back in was at once agonizing. Mm-hmm. but also incredibly fulfilling. Like I learned so much through that process. But I guess, you know, the question that I had kind of related to that, but not really, because I think that I had about the best uh, relationship with an editor and a publisher that an author could dream of having. So I, I, I don't ever feel like I needed you as a shield from them ever. Mm. Perhaps you did, and I just don't know about it, because <laughs> I don't <laughs> want to know about it. But have you ever felt that that was your job, was to protect your author from perhaps excessive aggression from a publisher or, you know, a publisher that was maybe taking too many liberties with your author?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, and that can happen. That can happen all the time. Sometimes someone's editorial style really doesn't chime with with an author. And then you have to you have to work that out because because that could be the the, the The way the feedback is given will be someone might might rewrite particular sentences in a way that that author could never write, as opposed to giving sort of top line, broad brushstroke. Like we can't do this at the moment, but we might we might be able to bring it back in. But this is this is what we need for the overall structure of the book. Some of it can be more voice led and that can be really problematic. And if that is an issue, then you have to curb that excess. Um, So that can be and that can be difficult. Um, for
1: the author and for you, yeah.
0: and and for the publisher, you're basically saying we're gonna have you're gonna have to sort of climb down. Sometimes people can disagree on a, you know, they can disagree with the argument that an author is making, and an author can completely disagree with the kind of editorial that's being given, and you know that that obviously creates a difficulty, and that's just part of things that can that can happen. Mm-hmm. I'd say that's more likely to happen with something that's sort of issue based, but you know. You're then you're then there to try and find a trying to find a way through and often that means getting in the corner of your author as you, as you should be. Mm-hmm.
1: What does that look like though? I mean does that mean like
0: literally? it's not a physical fight <laughs>
1: <laughs> Like do you
0: like I train all the time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've seen you. The I mean, the idea of yeah, the idea of <laughs> I the tiger pu- pu- publish, publishers. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think many people are particularly intimidating. In the, yeah, make, may stand corrected, but no, it doesn't come to to blows. It doesn't come to blows, no. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, let's hope not. At least not for Charlie Brothers. So. <laughs> okay, so we've gotten through the writing phase. It's, it's now publication is coming. And I wanted to touch upon what you mentioned earlier, which is there are some authors who are sort of, you know, very, very defiant in mm. their stance about marketing and promoting their book. Not my job. My job was to write the book. It's now yeah. the job of XYZ to sell the book. I literally saw a tweet on this issue probably six months ago where an author was like, hey, I wrote the book, not my job to sell it, not my job to promote it, not my job to market it. And, you know, she was tweeting this as a lesson, a PSA, if you will, to other authors saying, and if anyone tells you otherwise, they're wrong. Right. <laughs> is it, but is it
0: right? I mean, it- it probably wouldn't be now, now the way that publicity works. It probably wouldn't be in the author's best interest. So whether it's whether it's worth like disseminating that as like this should be how you approach it, I'm not. I'm not completely sure. I think I think an author knows their book the best. So if you know, often it is a collaboration. It's like what are the best angles here? What should we be offering to X? And someone could say, well, that that is your job. But they could also say that is your job and I can do it really well with you or I can make you even better at doing it because I'm going to be able to help feed you the lines that are going to mean that the op-ed editor at the Atlantic is going to be more likely to to, to take it on. So the sort of value that you have in in actually kind of bettering your chances in author career mean that working closely and helping to promote is probably in your best interest. But, mm-hmm. but you know, and then uh, you, I, I can totally see why someone would feel, well, I've, I've produced what I was asked see, to do. I
1: can't see that because of exactly what you just described. Oh, why wouldn't you help? Like you said, Uh, you know, as the author, I know the book better than anyone else Mm. and I want it to sell. Yeah, I mean, there's no, I mean, unless you just don't care if the book sells, I suppose, then why, why did you even write it at that point? You could have written it and kept it in your room, you know? So like, if you want people to read your book, then why wouldn't you feel like, yeah, I want to participate in this. I had a lot of trouble understanding that tweet. Now you talked about like back maybe in the 1930s, you know when george orwell was writing his mm. book maybe he had that mindset yeah i I've, I've written the book it's it's not my not my job i mean where does that even come from
0: i, I can understand a, a little bit why someone would do that because their th- their whole energy has been built in the stylistic production of you know this this thing that people are you know their the receiver the reader is supposed to understand what the intention was and to uh, and to then try and sell it in a way which seems Slightly reductive to mm, that yeah. mystery, mm. I, you know, I could, I could probably see that. But the reality is now that people, you know, authors are, pub, you know, the, the more of a public figure you are, the, the the more you're likely to appeal to a wider audience. So it has become kind of more part and parcel. So to not do it would be more of an act of self-sabotage than it would have been in an earlier era where people just start, you know, they would just talk about a book and that's how the word of mouth word would, of mouth, would yeah. spread.
1: Do you think word of mouth still plays a large role Definitely. in marketing? Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. How does
1: that even start though? I mean, where does that start? Because I think to people like me who've grown up with social media and buy half the things that they buy through Instagram, mm. I mean, it's sort of a mystery,
0: Word of mouth is one, one part of the, the various things that have to happen in order for a book to just get more and more visibility. They say that if people see it in three different contexts or hear about something in three different contexts, they then are more likely to buy the book. Oh, I love that. They might see one review, someone might have spoken to them about it personally, and, and, and then they're sort of, they see it in a bookshop, and those, those golden three then produce the, produce the, the buy.
1: Conversion. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, I had less than 40,000 followers on Instagram when I signed my book deal and far fewer subscribers on YouTube. At the time, I thought that was a really big deal. Fast forward to today, where pretty much anyone and everyone is going viral, and 37,000 followers may not be nearly enough to get looked at seriously by a publisher. Times have indeed changed, whether authors like it or not. But as Charlie and I discussed, some authors, well, they're reluctant to harness the power of social media to their advantage, which begs the question, does social media need to play a role in an author's career? I mean, I I remember, and, and we were talking about this kind of offline, you know, I do remember at a certain point, I think probably a few months after I'd handed in my manuscript and, you know, the changes had been made, and you said to me, what's your social media plan and I remember thinking to myself, I was like, Charlie, I've already grown my Instagram account to like 60,000 followers. Like, what more do you want from me? I, mm. I remember having that thought, but then, you know, I'm always the people pleaser. And I'm like, well, if Charlie needs me to grow my social media <laughs> following, then I guess I need to do something. What a monster. <laughs> so I remember, you know, around that time was when people were talking a lot about TikTok. And, you know, I've talked about why I started a TikTok account many times. I did it as a consumer. But at a certain point, I decided to start sharing food content. And I remember... That was directly correlated to the fact that my literary agent had questioned me about my social media strategy for when the book came out. And obviously, the rest is history. My whole life changed as a result of starting my TikTok account. Thank you, Charlie, for changing my life in so many different ways. (laughs) But I guess my question is, what role does social media play? Is it a large one? Does it have to be a large one in an author's marketing and promotion strategy?
0: I think it does depend what you're, what you're writing and also how, I think the brilliant thing that your social media has shown is that you have an embarrassment of riches. Like you can, you can speak on any number of different subjects. And I think it, it meant that people came to you from completely different backgrounds. You created a a momentum that was sort of irresistible and that's unusual. And then, you know, to have that breadth is a, is a publicist dream. So, you know, you're you're able to you're able to appear on X show at the same time as writing an op-ed in the Atlantic. I mean, that was that was a rare talent. How how important is is someone's social media to their ability to promote a book? I think I think some people it's a natural extension of how of their personality on their social media and that's how it can that's how it can work really well they have to be excited about the book in order to in order to do that so it sort of stems back in, in into sort of first principles like are you behind the concept of the book how if you're looking at it purely as just like something you know you, it made sense to do you know at what point is that going to mean that you're slightly limited in the way that you're helping to helping to pitch and promote it
1: mm. So I could sit here for four more hours asking you way more questions, but A, we need to go eat some vegan sushi and B, I don't think my battery is going to last very much longer, (laughs) but I do have like some serious like questions that I I definitely need to get through. Even if we can't have video of it, (laughs) because I want the audio version to, to answer some of these questions. One of the things that I'm picking up from you is, you know, writing a book for a lot of people, especially if it's their first one, it is a taxing demanding and incredibly emotional process. I don't care if you're writing a book about wrenches, (laughs) like it's it's, you're putting yourself Mm. on paper for potentially thousands of strangers to read and judge you on. And so most people are very keen on putting their best foot forward and they're looking to their agent to help them realize on that vision, an incredibly personal one, it sounds to me that one of the most important aspects of of writing a book when you are represented by an agent is building not just rapport but sort of like legendary levels of trust. Mm. How do you go about doing that with your authors?
0: Yeah, and I, it it becomes absolutely crucial to your relationship, and I and I think I think it happens incrementally. You know, you you you, you, you start you start going back and forth, you start. You know there is that element of, of of trying to avoid a situation where you could you could have your confidence knocked and just trying to build up to what you know the author is capable of and you know that 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 just that takes time it takes conversations that that can lead to even just putting that first pen to paper mm-hmm. but I think it It is the basis of your, it's the basis of your relationship going, going forward.
1: Have you ever had like extremely unexpectedly emotional moments with your authors?
0: Yeah. I mean, a a lot. I mean, I think that everything's, everything's heightened, you know, and that, that, that can mean, you know, extreme happiness and, and often, you know, the opposite. And you, you sort of go through that together because, You've, 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 you're working together.
1: I mean, is it really that Jerry Maguire type of situation <laughs> where he's like, you're my agent. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, because honestly, I mean, I will say personally, like that is definitely the truth for me. But sometimes I wonder, are all literary agents like that? Do they view themselves in that capacity where they're a steward, a friend, a mentor, a peer, all of these things, sort of a therapist, mm. you know, kind of like wrapped into this one person there is this really special relationship that I think can blossom, but I don't know if that's really typical anymore. Maybe when, you know, your great mentor, Ed, mm. was in his heyday and doing that, that was the quintessential relationship. I just wonder if that remains true.
0: I think I think as you're shepherding someone through a, a publishing process, they can be surprised at various different points and things can, things can sort of, almost surprise, they surprise the agent sort of in, in terms of what people's reaction to, you know, say if it's editorial feedback. So I, I think inevitably if you, have, it, it, if you have a sense of wanting to, to, to sort of explain and reassure... I don't know to what extent that's a personality type, what I do think happens within a publication process is that you're going to have touch points throughout it and
1: vulnerability yeah.
0: and there's going to be yeah exactly there's going there's going to be consequently there's going to be some vulnerability and you just need to be able to work work through those
1: that can be very difficult i mean i I think that that not all people are equipped to receive that vulnerability and create mm. a safe space for that mm. and that's a unique talent that an agent has to have like Jerry Maguire.
0: (laughs) Every year I watch Jerry Maguire.
1: (laughs) I learn from the best. (laughs) But you know, I, I think that that's something that again, I wonder that I hope that all authors can have with their agents. I mean, one of the things that I thought was so lovely was that you took an interest in not just my writing. Like you, you, had an interest in ensuring that all aspects of my career were sort of working together. And to the extent that you could facilitate, realizing a much larger vision than just for the book, you were right there to do that. And, you know, obviously, I I feel extremely lucky that I was partnered with somebody who had the ability to do that. I I mean, is that the role that literary agents play? I mean, do they help them beyond books?
0: I think... I think it again. It depends on, as I said before, you you, you do have a kind of embarrassment of, of riches. Like you, you are able to do a number of different things, and just being able to honestly, the, 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 the pleasure of being a literary agent is that vicarious enjoyment of seeing someone's career blossom and seeing that, well, actually. There's no reason to look at this in in a sort of atomized way. This is part. This is part of a bigger. This is part of a bigger picture. And and you grew, you know you grew into that role, and it was it was it was extraordinary. But it was all there, you know. And and so I guess being being involved in different parts is just it's just extra satisfaction. Mm. And yeah, it's it's a lucky lucky position to sometimes be in.
1: One of my favorite sayings, and and this is for Barbara because she's the one who shared this with me. So thanks, Barbara. I'm going to use it again. One of my favorite sayings is I've had some, she always told me, I've had some of the best success in my life when someone close to me believed in me just a little bit more than I believed in Mm. myself. How often do you find yourself playing that role, being the one who believes in your author a little bit more than they believe in themselves?
0: I think that can't happen that can happen quite regularly and then seeing it, seeing that develop. And also you can, you can then get on different, you can get on different paths with that. And it's sort of, it, it, it's, it's, it's a really interesting one. I think your challenge is to try and find, find that one bit of impetus that then, that then gives that, you know, it, 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 it provides that breakthrough moment where, where you realize that, if you're, you're able to help someone realize that talent a mm.
1: couple of controversial questions oh,
0: <laughs> I knew they were, I knew they were coming <laughs>
1: we waxed poetic on the importance and value of having a literary agent what about people who say I don't need an agent I can do this on my own
0: I think that's I mean I think that's valid it it's it depends on what approach you're taking to, to to publishing overall you know and I'd say for for people that are writing within particular genres they, they they can definitely make that work and they can point to some examples where it can happen i it's more difficult because you don't have you don't have that person that's between you often and a and a, and a publisher mm-hmm. and and that that can that can manifest itself in so many different ways also you, you, then if you're, you're, if you're in a contractual situation, yeah how are you going to navigate that p- particular area and know what? Is, is normal in terms of what kind of rights you're giving away.
1: Another question that's a little bit controversial, but prescient, a lot of writers right now are finding themselves out of a job or are taking on the onus of creating laws, regulation or protocols for dealing with AI and, mm-hmm. and this, its impact on writers and other artists. What are your thoughts on, you know, where we are creatively and you know, from a literary perspective, given what we're now seeing with AI and its capacity.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's no doubt we're at a sort of crossroads. It's something which has kind of crept up from, I, I mean, it, it, really with the chat GPT, that just, it, it it broke it out into into the mainstream. And ever since then, we've been trying to grapple with it i think i think what we need is people who have strong voices and strong takes on on these things i think we're we're kind of we're trying to learn as an industry anyway like how to how to navigate it and realize that that is a massive work in progress but it's also too early to say where creativity's going you know And, and and in terms of publishing itself it's it's always been an industry that's had these like moments where supposedly it it's its role becomes more redundant and it, and it and it has you know managed to persevere
1: like um, ebooks
0: <laughs> yeah exactly exactly like ebooks or yeah the google library they've got to scan all scan all the books and you know make them make them available and they have been resilient as physical products but obviously it, you know that's just as you've experienced you know in a visceral way the, the way in which this is happening is far more insidious and wide. And also we've, we've, we've gone through a period of basically giving technology a kind of free hand.
1: Exactly. And
0: now it's coming back. I mean, I, I work with an author who's a human rights barrister. She wrote a book called The Freedom to Think. Sorry, it was Freedom to Think in the end. And it was about the fundamental human right of the freedom of thought, which actually is in the Geneva Convention and how we are in a, in a sort of real life dystopia, giving that away all the time. And and maybe the, the excesses of AI are that first sort of kickback on that. So she's writing a new book called Human Rights and Robot Wrongs.
1: Okay, everyone, let's go <laughs> <talk> for <over> that. <laughs> As we round the corner to Home Base, I thought it might be fun to end the podcast with a little cheekiness. As I mentioned in an earlier podcast episode, Charlie often confuses us with what I call his Britishisms. So for this following bit, we test Charlie's knowledge of both American and British figures of speech, followed by a bit more irreverence. Play along and see how you do. Well, I wanted to save the last bit of our podcast for a little bit of a fun, fun, sort of lighthearted quiz, as I mentioned in an earlier podcast, Charlie is so British that I often can't <laughs> understand a lot of the things that he's said, and that was, that definitely came up during a car ride here. So I actually had our friend, our mutual friend, Val, come up with <laughs> a list of Britishisms, as I call them, <laughs> and I wanted to see how well you knew them.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Okay.
1: Okay. So, a few sandwiches short of a picnic. Yeah. What does that mean?
0: It, it, it can have a literal meaning, <laughs> but I, I, I think it, it's getting a, well, I, it, it's getting the fact that you're, you're not quite there, um, you're not quite stable, ah. um, uh, but you could say someone was mad as a box of frogs.
1: Oh, a, a what?
0: Mad as a box of frogs.
1: Mad as a box of frogs. Um,
0: or not quite the ticket. One card short of a full deck.
1: Okay. That I can understand. Now, here's one that I've heard many times and I never understood what it means. Bob's your uncle.
0: Bob's your uncle. Yeah. <laughs> what
1: the heck does it mean? Bob is not my uncle. <laughs> no,
0: no. It, it, it just means that you've found the answer to the riddle and Bob's your uncle. There it is.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. That's a really, okay. Interesting one. That'll be a doddle.
0: That'll, that'll be easy.
1: Oh, okay. I thought that meant would mean that that, that would be fun. Pop your clogs.
0: Uh, that is to shuffle off this mortal coil.
1: What does that mean? <laughs> replace to, one Britishism
0: with another. <laughs> to kick the bucket.
1: Oh, to die. Yes. Oh, okay. So pop your clogs mean to to end.
0: <laughs> I really, I really hope I'm right on this. <laughs> it's <really> otherwise, it's
1: <laughs> okay. Skew whiff. Uh,
0: yeah, if something goes skew whiff. Uh, or if something's at sort a of skew with angle, it's... Um, like it's, skewed? Yeah, it's skewed.
1: Okay, okay, that's that. tickety-boo. <laughs> what is that?
0: <laughs> it's like a sort of uh, Mary, Mary Poppins quiz. Tickety-boo is just, stuff. Oh, everything's wonderful.
1: Oh, oh, okay, like peachy, peachy keen, hinky-dory. Exactly, okay. exactly. Wind your neck in.
0: That means sort of pipe down. Okay. Which also, I mean... Does pipe down have any resonance for you?
1: Yeah, pipe down means, you know, keep it.
0: Yeah. 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 But I think it, I think it's well, wind. Yeah. I, for, it's like a tortoise winding its. Is it uh, like a.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. I don't know.
0: I don't know whether that's where. Okay, it is. Okay, like from. shrink
1: back in. Okay. Yeah. So, and then finally, taking the biscuit.
0: That takes the biscuit. I think that can actually go a few different ways. So it can mean that it's like the best thing. Or if you're taking the biscuit, you're sort of taking the mickey. What is I'm taking the piss
1: <laughs> okay didn't know that one okay now i'm going to give you some american sayings have you heard of so fetch no okay so fetch means like cool like that's so that's so fetch yeah so fetch is like a newer way of saying that's so bad but good
0: nice <laughs> how i mean how long has that been in
1: it's like not even really in circulation, but it was from this movie called Mean Girls. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What about dead-ass no cap?
0: <laughs> nope.
1: <laughs> so do you know what cap means?
0: Beyond beyond literal versions of <laughs> cap. No. no. So
1: when someone says cap,
0: <laughs> the, no.
1: that means that it's a lie. So okay. dead-ass no cap means like, yeah, that's so true, basically. I like it. Yeah, let's see. Here's what about Monday morning quarterback? Because you guys don't have
0: quarterback. No, I mean I, I know that quarterbacks kind of used interchangeably with like the the kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so no, like a like that would mean like a, like a, just a, a, someone who's crap at something.
1: <laughs> so Monday morning quarterback is sort of similar to hindsight is twenty twenty. It's like... Okay. Because football... Is, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. is yeah. played on Sunday night, typically. And so the Monday morning quarterback is like, oh, well, yeah, now you can say... You know, the quarterback should have done this or that. Nice. Uh, you know, because the game's already
0: over. <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like that. I like that. and I could have could have got there. Let's see. What's my... my can you ask me boondoggle? Because oh. I, learned, I learned that one recently.
1: What's a boondoggle?
0: <laughs> That's an American one. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but so the English version of that is to have a jolly.
1: Oh. It's basically,
0: yeah, it's to have a little... Like a perk. Yeah, it's like perk a perk. A day, it. A, yeah, exactly. A day a day, a day out.
1: Yeah, I've, I've been told that. I wanted to offer this to you as a
0: little boondoggle. It's just such a funny word.
1: What about till the cows come home
0: oh yeah I, but that's i think that i think Is that, that like works in both okay, yeah that
1: could be a british i one.
0: did literally once talk to a farmer who talked <laughs> till the cows came home it was it was it was actually hilarious
1: maybe it's an original british saying
0: but yeah quite possibly
1: yeah, yeah. let's see let the cat out of the bag
0: yeah i can expose a secret
1: okay and let's see if i can f- sh- shut the front door No? No. So it's sort of a euphemism for shut the F up. Okay. Yeah, so people don't want to say the F word, so they'll be like, shut the front door. So it's the same thing as CFU. Yeah, Yeah. that's going to
0: be really useful in life, actually.
1: Yeah, I think that's basically it. Yeah, play out of left field.
0: Yeah, sort of random, not quite...
1: Out of context, yeah. kind of thing. Okay, I think that's pretty good. You got a couple of them.
0: I mean, it's not great, is it? Let's <laughs> you, let's face it. You're I look. I look. I look. I knocked British, it out of the park oh.
1: with the British ones.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's good. Thank so you. have we? Oh, have we now got stock phrases we're gonna we're gonna use?
1: I guess. Are
0: you also gonna use Cockney rhyming slang?
1: No, I can't. I have to really study for that. <laughs> like I literally have to study. I can't remember a single one that I. have I, I just feel like
0: school. it will just take a, um, it will just take a, a little like flick and you'll, suddenly, so you'll go into <laughs> mode <back. laughs> and you'll just suddenly be able to do flowing Cockney rhyme.
1: As you can tell, Charlie was quite keen on hearing my Cockney accent, something I developed in high school while getting ready for a part in the school musical. While I will not subject you to that during the breadth of this, podcast episode. If you want to tune in at the very end, you can listen to our sort of bloopers reel where Anthony is egging both of us on on our respective British, and American accents. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining me, especially in this heat, since I refuse to do <laughs> air conditioning. I was like, I'm going to get better answers if I make him sweat for them.
0: I know, it's been, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you so much. And where can people... Send you their cover letters, Charlie.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. I'm available at all times.
1: <laughs> so you, they can find you on the internet, right? Just BCM? Yes,
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: BCM.com. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: That's Great. The one.
1: Well, thank you so much. And I hope you all enjoyed listening to our chat.
0: Thanks so much. Bye. <laughs>
1: Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with my representative of Quan, the Brit who changed my life and made all my dreams come true. I've often said that sometimes you will experience the biggest and most success in your life when you surround yourselves with people who believe in you just a little bit more than you believe in yourself. And I truly believe that Charlie has been that person for me. Anyway, everyone, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Are You Ready? with Joanne Molinaro. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor. Hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Leave a comment and a rating below. Let me know who you want to hear from next. Otherwise, in the meantime, I hope you have a wonderful and lovely day. what ain't no laws when drinking claws means. I'd be interested in hearing from you. So why don't you try that in an American accent?
0: Ain't, sorry, say it again.
1: Ain't no laws when drinking claws. <laughs> <laughs> Should we get the wine out? <laughs> Bust out the
0: wine. I don't, I, 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 for some reason, I'm doing like a this really specific...
1: Just do it. Ain't, ain't no
0: laws do. when drinking claws. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why is it that one? <laughs> There are so many. I don't, I don't even know what that is. That That's is like um, Bugsy Malone <laughs> or something. No laws <laughs> when drinking flies.
1: I will try it in a, a British accent. Ain't no laws when drinking claws.
0: <laughs> OK, yeah, you, you, you've got to do a, a few sandwiches short of a picnic.
1: A few sandwiches short of a picnic.
0: Very good. Very good. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it in um, in Forrest Gun. A few sandwiches short of a picnic. Oh
1: <laughs> Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> I don't know what that's like. <laughs> <An> Irish. <laughs> <slash guy. laughs> I'm so nervous. <laughs>
0: Uh, just the the, the 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 second one was excellent.
1: Okay, well, I know I can have a career as um, upper middle class British. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> it turns out you've just moved up up classes since you since <laughs> like you piloted your Cockney <laughs> accent. Exactly.
1: Well, there you have it, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this final <laughs> segment of the Are You Ready podcast. Are you ready to try your accents?